sour reality of climate anxiety. The lime in climate is a pun. You gotta, you gotta read this one, guys. This week, we're doing a special episode about climate change and how it relates to the city of Edmonton. We'll be joined by Chris Gusson, a climate change activist and communicator. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 53. Like I said, we're going to have a special guest on this episode to talk about climate change. Well, we're building up toward the United Nations event taking place on the 23rd next Monday. So we're going to talk about climate change and how it relates to Edmonton this week and over the next. Before we can get to all of that, just like the entire world is on fire because of climate change, we have a rapid fire segment at the top of every episode. With fall just around the corner, the goats at Rundle Park have packed up and clopped off for what might be the last time. The pilot project has reached its end, and now researchers will descend upon the park to determine if the animals were effective at their goal of naturally managing noxious weeds in the park. While the departure of the goats may be sad for some, those feeling the need to see creatures lazily lounging about and thoughtlessly bleeding are encouraged to participate in our democratic process and come to City Hall, where you can see 13 elected officials do so most days of the week. Councillor Aaron Paquette called for higher fines for littering this week. The Ward 4 councillor cited constituent complaints about fast food trash collecting on boulevards and fences as a justification for his desire to increase the $250 fine. An increase in the fine amount obviously being the best way to show we're serious about the issue, Speaking Municipally has done some back-of-the-napkin math. If we set the fine to the same amount we levy for murdering someone in a crosswalk with your car, about $2,000, And with 65 total littering tickets issued from 2017 to 2019, the city could bring in 65,000 in fine revenue a year, which for reference is a little more than it costs to repair the glass on the funicular when it gets vandalized, an extreme form of littering. We attempted to take a trek to City Hall to get the councillor's feedback on our estimates, but abandoned road closed and detour signage on the sidewalk prevented us from being able to make it. The Brick has opened a new interactive flagship store in West Edmonton Mall with a big grand opening featuring Olympic figure skater Tessa Virtue and the Eskimo cheer team. The Lone Shark that also sells furniture aims to use technology to easily show people all the things that could exist in their living room without them paying for 24 months, no interest. Every staff member will carry a tablet that can use augmented reality to help the customer visualize the concept of never truly owning the furniture in their home by constantly financing and replacing planned-to-be-obsolete low-quality pieces. Edmonton Mayor Don Iveson was present at the opening to celebrate the step forward for the company, saying, Edmonton City Council has been taking the lessons learned from the brick to heart, and we've thought hard about what else we can forfeit ownership of in order to profit corporations, and we're very happy with the progress on the Valley Line LRT. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This week, we're going to tell you about the Common Ground Podcast. It's a five-part series exploring narratives of hate and counter-hate in Alberta. The podcast was created by Irfan Chaudhry, director of the Office of Human Rights, Diversity and Equity at McEwen University, in collaboration with Iman Bukhari from the Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation in Calgary. The podcast was prompted by the rise in police-reported hate crimes in Alberta and a desire to examine what can be done to improve the way we look at each other. You can find it at mcewen.ca slash O-H-R-D-E, which stands for Office of Human Rights, Diversity, and Equity, or just search for Common Ground Podcast in the podcatcher of your choice. So, Mac, it's not just us today. Uh, We are joined in the room, which is warming up again today. The weather cannot decide, and what a perfect day to talk about climate change then when our climate has again changed radically for an entire summer. 
I'm getting the look about the climate isn't weather. Um, yeah. That's 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 the look that's coming across the table. Uh, you know the difference. You know better than that. I do. I do know better. And maybe I was poking the bear a little bit. That fine voice you're hearing, that's Chris Gussin. Uh, he's, like we said, a climate change activist and communicator. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us a bit about yourself, just off the top here. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, like Troy said, uh, I uh, have a background in marketing and communications. I've worked uh, mainly in the public sector, so for a university, for Edmonton Economic Development for a while, working on the Make Something Edmonton initiative. And most recently, my full-time job was Director of Government Identity at the Government of Alberta. So I was responsible for visual identity and brand, and I worked with a team of graphic designers. Um, but uh, in mid-June, I quit that job because I strongly disagree with the new provincial government, and I'm incredibly freaked out about climate change. So I'm dedicating myself now to trying to raise awareness, figure out how we can get more people sensing that urgency, and trying to dig in and understand climate policy as well as possible, too. Talk about taking action. So we've known each other for a while, obviously, and I was uh, following along with your adventures in climate change activism here in Edmonton. And so we got to talking about, you know, how we might be able to help other Edmontonians go on their own journey and what we might do about that. And you've agreed to work with us over the next couple of weeks on something that we're interested in doing at Taproot called Covering Climate Now. Uh, so just very briefly, this is a, a project led by CJSR and The Guardian and some other big publications. There's more than 170 news organizations around the world. And basically, they've all committed to running a week's worth of climate coverage in the week leading up to the United Nations Climate Action Summit in New York on September 23rd. Now, the commitment doesn't prescribe what they do, so these publications have full autonomy over what kind of coverage they do. They just got to commit to doing something. And so in our case, we're doing these roundups every week on lo local topics, and you, Chris, have agreed to curate some climate-related updates to each of those roundups for us. Yeah, that's right. I'm really glad you approached me about doing it. It's a, it's a cool opportunity for me, and uh, it's interesting also to think about how climate change intersects with all of the themes that you already have in place for the roundup. So it's not just an issue uh, for environmentalists. It's an issue that affects all parts of society and all parts of our city are responding to it. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what stories I'm able to pull together for arts, for example, and health, um, the regional perspective on climate change. So I'm really excited to do that. One joke that you kind of hear uh, in activist uh, circles is that these summits that happen every year or so are when a whole bunch of people get around and talk about what they're, you know, not going to do. You know, it seems like we've had these summits for years now. Uh, you know, there's younger activists that I'm uh, meeting through the work that I'm doing who have been, uh, who, were, who were born uh, after this, these summits started happening, right? So there's people who've lived their entire lives uh, in a society that knows very well what the impacts of climate change are going to be. And it seems like we are perpetually uh, in this um, cycle of thinking about it, uh, debating, and uh, not taking the action. That's okay, so before we get into some Edmonton stuff, climate emergency we've talked about on the show recently, uh, I want to transition into this, speaking about media coverage, with a question about your take on local coverage of climate change. We read all about the emergency every day in the newspaper, right? No, no, not at all. You know, it's, uh, you know, I think that the media is starting to do a better job of mentioning climate change when they talk about things like wildfires and flooding and uh, unusually, unusually dry uh, springs and unusually wet summers like we just went through here in Edmonton. Uh, but the journal was just uh, covering these uh, records of precipitation and their first paragraph talked about Mother Nature. So it's a little bit euphemistic. Uh, they did get into climate change a bit later in the story. Um, so, you know, I think they could do better. And actually, you kind of nailed it there, Mac. Like, 
if it is an emergency, which the science tells us it is, then why aren't we treating it essentially like a war? Like, why don't we have constant updates about this? Um, that we're certainly not uh, in a state now where the media is uh, emphasizing the crisis that we're in. And, uh, and in fact, we've got forces, uh, people like David Staples, who are uh, actively trying to counter that and trying to tell people to just remain calm. Nothing's out of the ordinary. Nothing needs to change. I mean, I seem to recall, and we might get into this in the climate emergency section, but we have a couple sitting city councillors who, when the emergency was declared, went on a media circuit, basically pitching to media organizations. Yeah, this doesn't really matter. I mean, this is a waste of money. Why are we even talking about this? And they were strangely quiet about it during the debate at council. Uh, I was at both the uh, executive committee meeting where they first started talking about it, and then I was at the full meeting. They didn't have much to say. We're talking about John D. from Ward 3, friend of the podcast, and Councillor Mike Nickel from Ward 11. We're not, we're not afraid to call those shots out. I'm shocked that those are the two names that yeah. came up. Don't forget Tony Katerina. He is very forgettable, though, because he's usually asleep at the table. Oh, ooh, man, it is a spicy episode <laughs> today. <laughs> okay, so we did declare a climate emergency in Edmonton, even though at first it seemed like maybe there wasn't an appetite to do that because we have the Edmonton Declaration and... You know, it's maybe more of a statement than action. What What's your take on that? Is it a good thing that Edmonton City Council finally voted to do this? Yeah, it was sort of a surprise uh, for me as well, although groups uh, like Extinction Rebellion have been calling specifically for that. That is one of their demands that different levels of government declare climate emergency. Um, so it was a pleasant surprise. Um, I think it just puts a finer point on what the Edmonton Declaration already says. Uh, and I think while it is uh, a symbol and doesn't have any special emergency powers tied to it, it came right on the heels of passing a motion to accelerate the uh, improvement of the energy transition strategy so that it, we meet Paris targets. So it was paired with action, and I think it gives us something to point to uh, if council fails to act. We can say, well, you said it was an emergency. Why aren't you acting? Was it actually action, though, or was it like, let's get a report on what action we might take because if we just do what we're doing, we're not going to hit the targets. Yeah, it was that. Okay. Uh, it was, okay. It was it's a, a form of action. It was a motion to ask for action. And uh, I am, you know, I have time on my hands and I'm nerding out about this now. So I did go um, the following week to sit in on the ETAC meeting, Energy Transition Advisory Committee. Um, so, you know, folks talked about the emergency there, staff and members of ETAC. Um, they talked about how, well, actually, 15 to 18, 18 months is emergency pace for the city. So they, you know, <laughs> they 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 kind of were, while some elements uh, of the motion were revised to speed things up. So, for example, there's now going to be this interim report uh, in December, which is sooner than was in the original motion. Uh, it was not a motion to put in place new policies uh, that are well documented already in the first strategy. Yeah, and some of this goes to the perpetual Edmonton state of being where we do not accept things that are globally recognized and other people have done the work and just say, okay, sure, kosher, rubber stamp, let's do it. Mm. Even we talked about the goats, right? Uh, it's a pilot project and we need to research to, are these goats effective? Fort Saskatchewan has had sheeps forever, sheep, just sheep forever. Uh, <laughs> Calgary has had a pilot project and now they've got over a thousand animals eating in there. We know these things work. Yeah, do we actually have to research that they ate the grass? I don't I don't get that. In fairness to that, we have to research that they ate the right grasses and sure. didn't but didn't die from calcium chloride too or something. Far off topic. We have a long history of ignoring external research to do it ourselves. And that is fine when we're talking about 
what the goats eat. That's less fine when every day that passes, we're outputting thousands of tons of GHGs into the air and ticking closer and closer to that three to five degrees of warming. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, because of the Edmonton Declaration, we've positioned ourselves uh, theoretically as a leader on climate action in cities. And there's now hundreds of other cities that have signed on to the Edmonton Declaration. So I think one thing that we can do as communicators and people who create media is look at what those cities are doing and point out when they're outpacing us and say, steal this idea. This idea is well proven. It works like there's nothing about the grass here that's any different. Well, maybe a little different. (laughs) So being a communicator on this topic, you likely communicate with people. So I'm going to throw out a couple typical responses that you might hear. Like, for example, in Edmonton, I don't really like our winter. Isn't it a good thing for Edmonton if our climate warms up? Yeah, you know, that's uh, thank you for playing the uh, climate denier. Uh, I've had some practice this summer. One of the things that I did after I left my job was I got involved with Climate Justice Edmonton and they're supporting a campaign called Our Time, O-U-R Time, which is a youth-driven movement modeled after sunrise in the States. And they're pushing for a Green New Deal. They're pushing for things like a, a leader's debate on climate change. And so one of the things I did for that was I stood on street corners in Edmonton and I canvassed people and I said, are you concerned about climate change? So I got some responses like that. Uh, so I had people saying like, oh, climate change, no problem. Or like, seems okay to me. It's like, you know, what's what's wrong with a bit of a warmer winter? Um, I think one thing to remember about climate change is we're talking about chaos and unpredictability, right? We're not just talking about a warmer winter, things becoming a little bit different. We're talking about injecting unpredictability into a system that has been stable for all of human civilization. So uh, it's not just about a warmer winter. That's sort of the weather thing that you were joking about earlier. So obviously the world's really interconnected and, uh, you know, rising sea levels in other places are going to have downstream impacts on us. But aside from slightly warmer winters, maybe, uh, you know, how is how is it real for Edmontonians? Like, you know, if you live on a coastal, in a coastal place, obviously the most apparent impact is going to be floods and hurricanes and things like that. What about for Edmonton? Is it drought? Is it is there something else that is going to actually be tangible for people to see? Because one of the th- challenges I think a lot of people have is that it's a longer term impact and it's hard for humans to think beyond what's right in front of them. Yeah, uh, you're right that we should think beyond just local impacts because the world is inter- interconnected. So one of the things that I fear the most uh, with climate change and a lot of people share this uh, concern is uh, how fragile our just-in-time delivery uh, system is for for everything from like food to the products that we use, right? Sure. So instability. But as far as like tangible local impacts, there's this great project uh, that my friend uh, Shafraz Kaba has been working on, which is a climate resilient virtual home. So it's it's online now. You can Google that and find it. And it uses the metaphor of your own home to help you think about how you're going to need to change uh, where you live uh, to prepare for the impacts. And so it goes into these four categories of impacts. So one of them is uh, increased. Uh, likelihood of wildfires wildfire smoke events if we don't actually have a wildfire here so we remember what happened earlier this summer ironically on the same day that the ucp recalled the carbon tax they had to (laughs) i was still at the government then they had to cancel their photo op uh, which was going to be at a gas station so that's number one is like increased increased uh, wildfire risk and that comes from drought so we had the driest uh spring on record in edmonton this past summer and so that's uh, set to continue so wildfire smoke wildfire events The other is uh, flooding, right? So uh, we just had our second wettest summer on record. So we can expect more uh, 
unpredictable rain events, more heavy rain events, and that can lead to flooding, which of course uh, people have experience with how that can damage homes and uh, create problems uh, with getting around the city. Um, the third would be extreme weather. So this includes uh, things like freak hail. Uh, so we had some freak hail uh, this summer, massive hailstorms that can cause a lot of damage, severe winds, tornadoes, ice storms, heavy snowfall, and then also uh, conversely, extremely hot days and heat waves, uh, which often when the media covers heat waves, you see people frolicking in fountains, Right. but heat waves have really serious effects and can cause people to die. Uh, and then uh, changing environment uh, is the fourth category. So because of climate change, different uh, climactic zones are actually shifting uh, to different parts of the world, right? So that can bring invasive species uh, like the pine beetle, um, and it can cause all sorts of chaos and unpredictability, especially in our food system, right? And of course, there's the economic impact to all of this that's readily apparent in Edmonton. Just over the next 20 years, we have $1.6 billion worth of EPCOR drainage upgrades required to handle our one in a hundred year floods that are happening more frequently than a hundred years now. Um, and the thing that people often don't remember about floods is your insurance probably doesn't cover it. There's an intense personal impact to when an entire neighborhood catastrophically floods and everyone loses everything. Yeah, a lot of people point out that the insurance industry is one of the most clear-eyed industries about climate change because they're looking at how it'll affect their bottom line, right? So, um, you know, Councillor Knack, during the debate about uh, the two climate-related motions these past few weeks, he did bring up that stat about the $1.6 billion. Uh, and he, I think it's pretty obvious that the failure to act is going to cost us many times more uh, in the long term than if we act now. Um, but the so-called fiscal hawks, they who decide to vote against anything, and you know, um, Mike Nickel was asking in the media afterwards, why didn't we talk about the costs of this? Well, he had an opportunity to ask about it, and he didn't say anything during the debate. Um, so it's really short-sighted to uh, worry about spending now when we know it's going to cost us more later, and it's uh, one of the biggest threats to the global economy as well. So let's talk about some of the actions that we can take, because typically when we're talking about climate change, there's some virtue signaling going on. There's things like banning plastic straws or plastic bags, which aren't necessarily a bad thing, but this gets the bulk of the media attention and the conversation. Is this a materially effective action? I think, uh, yeah, like as you called it, uh, virtue signaling, uh, things like banning uh, single-use plastics, not only is that not materially impactful, it's actually a distraction. It's a welcome distraction. The folks who are responsible for the bulk of uh, global emissions, uh, so the titans of industry, specifically the oil and gas, the politicians who uh, subsidize those industries still and are uh, delaying the transition, they're perfectly happy to have uh, us spending our mental energy fretting about plastic bags and uh, how much we drive. So I think that that's been part of my uh, my own personal shift over the last year. Uh, I spent, you know, I've always been concerned about the environment. And so for a long time, I've been vegetarian. Uh, I've biked as much as possible. I've made other decisions in my life to try to reduce my personal carbon impact. I think what's flipped for me in the past year is seeing some of the really scary reports coming from the IPCC and then seeing the inspiring activism of young people. I've realized that we need to band together and take collective action and we need to put an unprecedented level of pressure on politicians to uh, put the 
policies in place and the solutions that we know are there. Like you said earlier, the solutions are ready to be stolen. There's good ideas everywhere. So uh, there's just a lack of political will. And a lot of people will say, you know, there's big emitters in the world like China or India and I've Canada. I've that one on the streets of Edmonton too. Yeah, yeah, and Canada can't materially affect it. What do you make of that argument? Well, you know what was really interesting, and I didn't actually know this stat, but it was quite startling. At uh, Green Drinks last night, which uh, Troy joined us at, Professor Melanie Hoffman gave a presentation, and she pointed out that Alberta has the highest per capita emissions of anywhere in the world. So when you take into account our historical emissions and the fact that the developing world has uh, has risen because of our use of carbon, um, and you take into the fact what our lifestyles are now, saying, oh, you know, we'll go last, we'll wait until China and India gets uh, their act together, uh, that is just a cop-out. And, uh, you know, it, it also masks the fact that, like, we we have lifestyles that are far more luxurious than anywhere else in the world, right? As absolutely prompting for that discussion. The other interesting thing that she mentioned is that China's on track to meet and exceed their Paris climate reduction targets. Yeah, they might stop buying oil from us uh, if they electrify all their buses, right? Yeah, and Alberta and Saskatchewan are the only provinces in Canada that have increased their climate emissions almost 40% over the past decade or so. Yeah, while other provinces have decreased, uh, but the, that imbalance has meant that net uh, Canada has only decreased emissions by like 3% or something. Yeah. So um, the answer to my hypothetical question is, yeah, we can do some stuff in Alberta. We should do some stuff. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting. Uh, folks on social media reacting to the climate emergency declaration also said, like, what can we do? We're a city. But uh, cities uh, are responsible for 70 percent of GHG emissions globally. Right. So cities are where people are concentrated and it's where we have a population that uh, the vast majority believes in climate change. So I think cities are the front lines on this battle. So Edmonton's strategy that you referenced earlier, I think calls them big moves. Big shifts. Big yeah. shifts. What are the big shifts for Edmonton? Like what are the big things we as a city can do then to try to address this? That's a great question. Yeah. So the way they framed their plan for the for energy transition is they've sort of categorized it into three areas. So the first one is tools and targets. So this tool called the carbon budget allows us to be uh, a lot more uh, stringent, uh, a lot more rigorous in how we plan around uh, greenhouse gas emissions. That's sort of the first shift is using better tools and targets. Um, so for example, uh, we know that Edmonton has 155 megatons of carbon left to emit uh, before we uh, exceed the 1.5 degree uh, target. And so if we uh, keep emitting at the current rate, we're going to blow through that by 2027 instead of 2050. So we know using that conceptual tool that we have a lot of work to do. Uh, the second big shift is called the low carbon city and zero emissions transportation. So that's things like electrifying our bus fleet. Edmonton is making some progress there. We've got 40 uh, electric buses coming uh, next year and then 10 to top it up the following year. And then also things like densification, transit oriented development. Uh, and then, of course, it can be disheartening because we see, uh, you know, things like the decision uh, that happened about Glenora this week uh, that maybe, uh, you know, make you think that the council is not really cons considering densification to be an emergency issue. Third is emissions neutral buildings. So net zero building, which we have a lot of really innovative net zero builders in the city. So we should empower them. Fourth is called the renewable revolution. So that's really a shift that focuses on energy generation and how we're going to use renewable energy and things like district energy energy to change the way that our city gets its power. 
Um, the fifth shift is called a just and equitable transition. So that is not tied explicitly to a uh, number or, or a quantity of uh, reduced emissions, but it is tied to the idea that as we move away from a high carbon economy, some people will lose their jobs or need to get retrained. And as we experience uh, more of the impacts of climate change, we need to make sure that our society is protecting people uh, who are vulnerable. So this idea of climate justice is actually part of the city's plan, which I think is really good. Um, and finally, um, the idea of negative emissions. So there still will be residual emissions. Even if we were to start em stop emitting all carbon today, we know that there's still too much carbon in the atmosphere. And so we need to keep uh, exploring and employing uh, technology and also natural technology, things like trees that will allow us to uh, pull carbon out of the atmosphere and sequester it. So those are the six, six big shifts. So it's interesting that you mentioned the Glenora situation because we have to talk about this. Absolutely. It's everywhere I've been this week at coffee shops. That's what people want to talk about. So first, Mac, just give us an overview. What happened to Glenora this week? So there's a proposed development that is along the Valley Line West LRT line. This was a, you know, small commercial development. It's where there's a, currently a single family home. It's supposed to be right in front of where there's going to be a future LRT stop. And a band of residents in Glenora got together and opposed this, saying that it is against the character of the neighborhood. Like, they bought into family-friendly, and this is not family-friendly. And this went to public hearing, and only two councillors voted in favor of it. Everybody else voted against it. Which two councillors? <laughs> Councillor Paquette, interestingly enough, and friend of the podcast, Councillor Zadig. You don't often see those two solely aligned on an issue against the rest of council. Do you remember the last time that happened? No, no, I don't Maybe know. Never. Us. It's kind of, I don't know either. I, it, I mean, it's kind of like a split in bowling, right? So here's the thing. Paquette and Zadok actually do tend to vote similarly more often than you'd think, but for very different reasons mm. usually. But Paquette of the progressive counselors tends to be the one who is more, let's not do stupid stuff that wastes money. Uh, and John D is of the mind of let's not do stuff. Period. Yeah. Uh, so, so sometimes those line sometimes up. those yeah. do wrong clock strikes yeah. right. So I mean, there's an element of nimbyism here for sure. Um, but it's also just as you mentioned, Chris, like super obvious that on the one hand we're saying we need to change the way we move around our city and the way we build things in our city, and on the other hand we're saying, but as soon as somebody complains, we're not going to go ahead with that plan. Yeah. At what point are we going to choose one side or the other? Yeah, and this is the big fear that I especially have because we have a city council who is doing the right things. You talked about these big yeah. shifts. They all sound very great on paper, and we've got a report on climate action coming back. Yep. But it's immaterial without action. Yes. And we saw it this week with the Glenora decision because the Glenora development was unobjectionable in every way. It was a two-story development next to a transit stop. It was far and away very integrated in the community it was inoffensive in almost every way who wants to live right in front of an lrt station i'm not sure that's going to happen we have a transit oriented development that we've decided we wanted we have a mixed use area in a neighborhood which our zoning and city plan says this is what we want and yet our group of rich edmontonians we'll call them a karen of edmontonians came forward and then said no we're not going to allow this to happen and council sided with them just on the pressure of a public meeting that's scary it is scary yeah and, and you too know a lot more and you're more keen observers of this than i am um but yeah i think that's one of the scariest things uh 
Councillor Henderson uh, was quite uh, open at the meeting where the climate emergency was declared uh, that there are going to be some tough conversations ahead with some of these policies. And he wanted to front load those conversations. He wanted that to happen sooner than later with some targeted public engagement. But if that engagement is targeted at the Karens, uh, <laughs> then where are we going to land, right? At what point are we going to say, you know, science tells us this needs to happen um, and we've been elected to serve the public interest and to protect the future of Edmonton. I don't know. Um, I'm interested to see uh, what might happen in the next municipal election if more candidates uh, will challenge uh, councillors um, from the climate action side and, and, and say that actually we need um, folks who are bolder and quicker. And if you want to experience fear, tune into the previous episode of Speaking Municipally where Troy opines that there will be the opposite climate deniers running for city council. I know Valley Line West, which is where the West. heart of this Glenora thing. Getting back to Glee, you mentioned that there was a big green drinks event last night full of people ready to take climate action. Tell us a bit about the event. How did that go? Yeah. So one of the uh, groups that I've been involved with for a number of years is called The Local Good. And we have hosted for many years, longer than I've been involved, uh, an event called Green Drinks. So it's a casual mixer uh, at Yellowhead Brewery uh, for the last several years where people get together and talk about uh, sustainability, um, the local economy. Um, and, you know, it's been a pretty successful event. One thing that we decided uh, before this climate emergency declaration happened was that we wanted the entire season to be themed around the climate crisis and the climate emergency. We wanted to um, push the local good and green drinks to take more of a stance on this. Um, so we wanted to kick off the season, which is going to explore everything from uh, climate politics to the role of the arts in climate change. We wanted to kick it off with this rallying cry, this idea of climate action. So it kind of goes to some of the themes uh, that have been discussed over the past several re uh, weeks around Edmonton. You can't just call it a climate emergency without taking action. Uh, so we were astounded by the turnout of the event. We had uh, a completely sold out Yellowhead Brewery. Uh, it was one of the busiest we've had in a while. So I think that speaks to uh, the demand uh, for... Uh, knowledge about what one can do and it, it speaks to the man to connect with the groups who are already doing stuff and it, I think it speaks to the level of fear and anxiety as well what did you uh, what did you learn from the event Troy what did you take away I mean my key takeaways were mostly uh, in the initial sort of keynote talk where it was just sort of shocking facts about dispelling the myth that like Alberta is not a problem uh, because Alberta is in fact a problem China is going to meet its Paris targets and Alberta is increasing admissions. And there was a really stark moment where she plotted, you know, the carbon emissions in the atmosphere against ice ages and then just zoomed out the scale for where we are now with exponential growth of carbon in the atmosphere. And if that just doesn't floor you and scare you, nothing will. Yeah, I mean, I was familiar with that, but just seeing that visual like gave me heart palpitations and I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. Uh, so, yeah, you really... If you didn't believe it was an emergency going in, I think that presentation really drove it home. So uh, it was a uh, it was definitely a night of mixed emotions, um, but it's also heartening to be around uh, people and know that there's a large and growing community of people who want this action. Right. So let's talk about action. Listeners of the podcast, let's assume they're convinced by us right now, as they should be, because it's does it shouldn't take convincing science, guys. Let's assume they're convinced and they want to take some action and really get the ball rolling. What what's the next step? What's the action people should be taking right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So we already talked earlier uh, in the chat about don't be distracted by the call for 
individual action. So while it's important to do that, you, that alone should not be enough. So don't let that scratch your itch. You shouldn't be satisfied with it. So one thing uh, that we all need to think about is even if we don't think we're that kind of person who goes to a protest and uh, holds a protest sign, we think maybe like it's a little bit too rebellious um, or it's a little tacky or we're not good at making signs, we all need to start getting ready to do that more, right? So I think climate change uh, is this universal existential threat that is going to push more people, people like me who, um, you know, I've uh, believed in climate change as long as I've known about it and I've wanted it, um, to see uh, us make a difference, but I've never really gone out and been an activist. Now I'm labeling myself as an activist and I'm spending all my time on it, right? So I think there's this growing movement and everyone who's listening to this podcast should be part of it. One great way to dip your toe in that is to take off work on September 27th for the global climate strikes. So global climate strike week is happening September 20th through 27th. Uh, if you go to edmontonclimatestrike.org, you can find the schedule of what's happening. The big culminating day is going to be September 27th. And that's when youth climate activists are asking adults to get off the sidelines and march in solidarity uh, with the young people who've been striking uh, as part of the Fridays for Future movement every Friday out of school. So, yeah, I'd say that's the first way to dip your toe in. Um, but if you're overwhelmed, find the people who are helping and help the helpers. There are groups in this city and there's a growing movement of people who are trying to take political action to accelerate the change that we need. So curiosity is at the heart of much of what Taproot does, and I'm really interested in your personal journey on this. Just quickly, what is the thing you're most curious about now that you're going to be looking into over the next little while here? I I think there's a few things. Right now, uh, I am really excited to uh, dig in and uh, get nerdy about climate policy. And so some of what we talked about today, uh, what are other cities doing? What are the who are the cities that are ahead of us? Especially the cities that are in northern climates, so that we can no longer make that excuse like, "Oh, Edmonton can't figure out renewable energy because it's so cold here." Right. So I think digging into the plans that the city has already got, and then trying to, as a communicator, uh, break that down for people. Uh, there was a lot of engagement. A lot of people came out to the council meeting uh, where the energy transition strategy was first discussed. Then the climate emergency was declared and i think there was sort of a deflating like or a pat on the back how do we uh as concerned citizens keep the broader public engaged and educated about this um, so that they can uh, keep the pressure on we will definitely have links in the show notes to all of the things you've mentioned in terms of actions that we can take one action that we can take right now is funding the podcast so that we can continue doing it this episode is brought to you by rural routes to climate solutions how fitting is that? A podcast that dives into the technology and practices that are both good for the farm and good for the climate. Here's a bit more about the show. Hi, my name's Derek Leahy. I host Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, the podcast that looks at how farmers and ranchers in Alberta can use climate solutions to improve and strengthen their agricultural operations. I know we hear a lot of bad things in the media about agriculture these days, especially agriculture's impact on the environment. And you know what? Most of the stories are probably true. But there are a lot of things farmers and ranchers can do and are doing right now, right here in Alberta, to protect ecosystems, build resilient communities, and tackle a colossal problem like climate change. These are the stories you don't hear too often. And these are the stories we like to tell. Download and listen to Rural Roots to Climate Solutions on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and learn 
how what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate. Be sure to search for Rural Routes to Climate Solutions wherever pods are cast. That's Rural Routes, R-O-U-T-E-S, to Climate Solutions. Or you can visit rr 2 the number 2, cs.ca. So that'll be our episode mostly for today. We talked about a lot of stuff today, and some of it was, you know, aggressive change for climate and really taking action. Um, if you want to submit any of us to albertainquiries.ca for anti-Albertan activities. I've been Troy Pavlik, Mac Mail, and Chris Gusson. Yeah. Again, make sure Jason Kenny knows that we are, you know, commies, Red Scare, all that sort of fun stuff. Over the next week, be sure to check out uh, all of Taproot's roundups, and they'll contain the Covering Climate Now section that Chris is putting together for us. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, thanks for joining us, Chris. It was great to have you, and I hope that you see material success in changing the climate for the better in Edmonton. Well, I'll need both of you to help, and uh, I'll need everyone listening, too. All right. Uh, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Chris. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.